Good evening. The uh, congregation here, the elders asked me to speak this evening on a topic that they've titled on the programs that you all received, Christian Living. I received, our current culture dismisses the concept of absolute truth and seeks to promote an ideology of a relative truth based on personal experience and individual perceptions. This kind of thinking leads to confusing and inconsistent moral standards for behavior. The very idea that certain behaviors are right or wrong is questioned. Discuss the concept of sanctification. What does it mean to be sanctified in truth? How can we know for certain what is right and what is wrong? Does our behavior matter to God? What does God really expect from us? How is our relationship with God affected by our behavior? What are the consequences of an ideology that rejects absolute truth? In what ways has this ideology affected the church? How can we best make a stand for truth with our neighbors in the world? How can we determine when we are being faithfully truthful versus when we are being unjustly judgmental. And we have 45 minutes <laughs> together. I want to begin by looking at a study that came out in 2005. I found this study most interesting because I would have fit the category of individual that they were assessing at the time. I was graduating from high school in 2005 and they were looking at American teenagers. And I think it helps today to get a sense for society's current state of confusion. Uh, most of the individuals that were included in that study are now in their early to mid-30s. They would have children. They would be advancing in their careers, and they're beginning to take leadership roles within our communities. And so their thoughts 20 years ago have trickled into what they're teaching their children now. The dominant religion among U.S. teenagers in 2005 was what these uh, observers called moralistic therapeutic deism, which means God exists. He may even be the creator. But he is not involved in our world except when we need him to solve our problems. These problems are ones which keep us from the central goal in life, to be happy and to feel good about oneself. One should be a good person, which is not defined, and if they are, they will go to heaven. The other observation they found was that the vast majority of these teens had no sense for the Christian understanding of the world, although they would claim to be Christian and follow the steps that their fathers and mothers had instilled in them. In one section of this study, they write, the vast majority of the teenagers we interviewed of whatever religion said very plainly that they simply believe what they were raised to believe. They are merely following in their family's footsteps and that is perfectly fine with them. And just a few pages later, 
Our impression as interviewers was that many teenagers could not articulate matters of faith because they have not effectively educated, been effectively educated in and provided opportunities to practice talking about their faith. It was our distinct sense that for many of the teens we interviewed, our interview was the first time that any adult had ever asked them what they believed and how it mattered in their life. On those two observations, the study concluded as follows. We have come with some confidence to believe that a significant portion of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but has rather substantially morphed into Christian's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. This has happened in the minds and hearts of many individual believers, and it also appears within the structures of at least some Christian organizations and institutions. The language and therefore experience of trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification, church, and heaven and hell appear among most Christian teenagers in the United States at the very least to be supplanted by the language of happiness, niceness, and an earned heavenly reward. It is not so much that U.S. Christianity is being secularized, rather more subtly, Christianity is either degenerating into a pathetic version of itself, or more significantly, Christianity is actively being colonized and displaced by quite a different religious faith. This reality led Kenneth Birding of Biola University to write in 2014 in an article titled The Crisis of Biblical Illiteracy. Christians used to be known as people of one book. Sure, they read, studied, and shared other books, but the book they cared about more than all others combined was the Bible. They memorized it, meditated on it, talked about it, and taught it to others. We don't do that anymore. And in a very real sense, we're starving ourselves to death. Jude sounded this alarm bell 2,000 years before that. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Since its earliest preaching, the gospel has been perverted by men seeking their own glorification. The corruption of our time is nothing new. Houses of sand have been built since Matthew 7 and before. And like the foolish man, their house will crumble in the storm, having ignored the foundation of God's truthful word. So in the spirit of Jude's warning, we're going to consider earnestly contending for the faith over the next several minutes. We want to know God's will for our life so that our living can be placed on solid rock 
and not crumbling sand. We'll begin by considering the concept of sanctification. That is a big word, and it's not a word that I find we use during general conversations, and so it may not be a word that you're as familiar with in your daily life. After understanding this biblical grace, we'll connect our sanctification to the fully committed truth, and we're going to find that God has called us by his word through true instruction to a life that is based in his will and subservient to him. He bought us with redemptive price, and so it is not our right to determine the course of our own life. Christ sets the example, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. And because of this submission, we do it to him who is true, we can be assured of life through him. So what is sanctification? We're introduced to this word in the book of Exodus, although the concept predates our introduction to the word, I do want to go to this passage in Exodus 31. God is talking here about the Sabbath. And there's some important points to note about God's use of the idea of sanctification and how it relates to us. And the Lord spoke to Moses, this is verse 12, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does, not, does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people." The first point to notice about sanctification is that it is God's doing. He is the Lord who sanctifies. There was nothing about Saturday or the seventh day that was necessarily any more holy than any other day in which God exists. But God declared it holy, and he gave reason for why it was holy, but it was of God's doing. Therefore, it was holy and sanctified. And because he made it holy and sanctified, if they were going to be holy and sanctified in him, they had to acknowledge the holiness of that day. Other nations were working on that Sabbath. If we were to go to the book of Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, and look at verses 15 through 21, we'd see an example of men who wanted to work on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah stopped them. Why? Because that day was a holy day unto the Lord. It was sanctified. Israel was to refrain from work because they were to look different than the other nations. All the other nations could work all they wanted to on the seventh day, but not Israel because they were set apart as God's people. They were God's people. He had sanctified and set that day as special and holy. And so they needed to acknowledge that and honor him by submitting to what he had made holy. Paul confirms the same reality about our sanctification. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Notice here that these are behaviors, motives in the heart. Sanctification has to do with our behavior. It's a way of life. It's our heart process. The second thing to notice here in 1 Corinthians 6 is that Paul tells them they were a certain way, but because of three things happening simultaneously, they no longer are that and are no longer to be that. They were washed through baptism. They were sanctified through God making them holy. And we'll talk about how in a little bit. And they were justified by the blood of the Lamb. Thirdly here, all of these agents took place in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. Sanctification happens simultaneously with our baptism and with our justification. And I believe by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit working in us and identifying us as one of God's. We are no longer ours. We are no longer in our flesh. We belong to God. And so he can call us a child. Because we have his Spirit now within us. We belong to him. And we are set apart to his will. In the Roman letter, Paul spends chapter 7 addressing the fleshly realities of life. We can in our flesh recognize that there are good things to do. And perhaps you have known of this. I had a a boss for several years who uh, we would be talking about religion from time to time. And he would talk in terms of all the good things that he was doing. I'm taking care of my mom and dad. I helped a neighbor with this project. I go and shovel her driveway. She can't get out. And these were the the connecting points for him as to his good life. I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. Even in the flesh, we can recognize there are things that are good. And we can want to do them for the good that I will to do, Paul says in verse 19. I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. The resolution, though, cannot come from within man. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 8. And then we'll jump back to Romans 7. But Hebrews 10, starting in verse 8 here, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. These were the things that man could do. We had control over whether we offered a sacrifice to God or not. We had the ability to offer these and slit the throat of the lamb and roast it on the altar as a sin offering. We had the control over that, but he didn't desire that. He wanted something more. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, 
Oh God, he takes away the first and he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This was something that we could not do on our own. The very point that Paul is making in the Roman letter. The resolution comes through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25 of Romans 7. And yet, even though we were delivered from this body of death, verse 24, and now able to walk through the Spirit, chapter 8, verse 1 of the Roman letter, there is this flesh that still remains. There's still a body. Very few people go into a watery baptism and never wake up. We're still alive for the vast majority of us. There have been instances... And praise be to God that they made the right choice in that moment. But there were flesh and blood within us right now. And we live in a carnal world. How do we deal with this? I'm still here. All of us who have been given our lives to the Lord still remain fleshly beings. So what are we to think of Romans 8 verse 10? And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Sanctification happens by God immediately on our conversion. We're no longer subject to the bondage of flesh. God gives us that spirit of adoption, Romans 8.15 where we can cry out, Abba, Father, we have this Father, we have His Spirit within us, and yet this flesh still exists. And so sanctification can't end there. God initiates new life. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Romans 8, verse 14. Sanctification is a process. God initiates new life within us, and then he leads us to the point where we start to resemble the mature look of his true son. Holiness, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but holiness really had to do with proximity. You think about when Moses sees the burning bush there, and God tells him to take off his sandals, what you're doing, where you're at is holy ground. And if you're going to be on holy ground, you better be in close proximity to what is holy. Why was that ground holy, though? It was holy because God dwelt there. God was in its in existence right there. And so it of innate nature, not because that soil was any different or that bush was any different, but because God existed in proximity to it, all of a sudden the ground became holy. Holiness has to do with our proximity. Sanctification, then, is this process whereby God is developing us and building us into something that can be close to him. Paul doesn't say, until Christ is in you, in Galatians 4.19. Instead, he says, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Christ must be formed within we're given a new life and a new birth, and then there is this formation process whereby we're transformed by the power of God. Galatians 2.20 points to a solution for us. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Why am I holy? Because Christ lives in me, just like God lived in that burning bush existing there. Now we're in proximity to God. There is closeness. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I'm still alive here in flesh and blood. The life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a maturing process of sanctification where we grow closer and closer to the image of the firstborn. For whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8, 29. Sanctification then begins with God gracing us with his spirit, Christ's blood covering when we receive, and God gracing us then with his spirit. God's spirit then works in us to further conform us to his image and make us useful in his kingdom. This is God's doing. I cannot of myself be joyful in the sense that God wants me to be joyful. I cannot have peace in the sense that God wants me to have peace. I cannot love to the depth that God wants me to love. If I try to make myself these things, I fail. But God is able to make me bear this fruit because I have his spirit within. It is the fruit of the spirit within if I need joy, his spirit is there. If I need peace, his spirit is there. But he is only there when we leave that flesh and want to come transformed with a heart set on things above. So how does this tie into truth? As we saw earlier, we live in a world that denies the basis for truth. There is no absolute truth in their mind. And so we're left with a scenario where man is being transformed by a lie. Experience, rather than fact, determines the fate of faith. Does it feel good? Do I feel accepted for who I want to be? Am I able to justify myself? Truth shifts, and the standard by which we live shifts. And so we're stuck in a malaise of confusion determined by the cultural majority focused on self above all else. Jesus prayed to the Father that the disciples would be caught up, not be caught up in this flood of dissipation. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. John 17, 17 through 19. The word of God calls us to live apart from this world's chaos. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18. It provides then a standard for truth, God's word. There is something unclean, and the determination of what is unclean isn't made by my own feelings. It's made by God's truth. God who cannot lie, 
Titus 1, 2, sets the definition of what is clean and what is unclean. This is literally shared with us in Leviticus chapter 11 when he's talking about fleshly carnal things that were going to be unclean and going to be clean. Verses 44 through 47. Why were there certain animals that were clean and certain animals that were unclean? We can come up with theories, but ultimately it's because God said so. That's what made them clean and unclean. He, the Holy One, determined this is clean. And so it became so. He set the standard and it was true. If they wanted to be holy like him, they needed to allow him to be their God. That's exactly what he tells them in Leviticus 11.45. If we desire holiness, then we must allow the one true God to set our path. We have to allow him to determine what is clean and what is unclean. And we don't get to decide this. We don't get to decide what is appropriate to work or whether it's appropriate not to work. God sets that standard. We don't get to decide whether we're free to express ourselves sexually however we choose. God sets that standard. We don't get to decide whether it's appropriate to take revenge or not. God sets that standard. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So Paul begins here by encouraging growth. Abound more and more. We're growing closer and closer to the image that God designed for us. We're getting closer and closer in proximity to our Savior. And other places were described as children, and we've looked at those places. And this is the idea here. We're growing up and we're maturing. We're losing those thoughts of childhood, and we're maturing into the full measure of Jesus Christ. He goes on, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God designed you for holiness. He wants that for you. That's his will. And if God wants you to be a certain way, and you want to acknowledge the truth, then you must live as he sanctifies you. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul's primary focus in this section is on sexual immorality. Sexual perversion has been a constant issue throughout all generations. Just a few generations into this world, and we see Lamech having two wives. It wove itself into religious beliefs with temples made to please the gods through sensuality. God gives us the truth in the matter. Possess your own vessel according to my will. Marriage is honorable, the bed undefiled, says the Hebrew writer. Do so in an honorable way. But the greater point that he's making here in 1 Thessalonians is that lustful behaviors stem from those who do not know God. We can't expect the world to recognize the truth of God and to submit themselves to the standard for holiness. 
They don't know God. But we do. And we have his spirit within us. Therefore, we're bound to him. To submit to him. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of such. As we also forewarned and testified. The idea is that no one would trod on his brother's rights for the sake of his own lust. The sanctification process calls us not just to consider ourselves, but to consider one another in our actions. Not only do I maintain purity for my sake, but also for the sake of my brother. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? For God did not call us, Paul continues in 1 Thessalonians 4, to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he rejects this, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his spirit. Through his truth, God calls us to be like him. Be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 And so he enables us through his spirit to grow and to be that holy child of his. Jesus spoke about this spirit in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him For he dwells with you and will be in you. This gift of the Spirit then is the gift of truth. The one dwelling in us and who identifies us as God's child, this is this one that is the agent of our sanctification, according to 1 Peter 1 verse 2. That is the Spirit of truth. When we hear Christ praying in John 17, he's not just praying that we would hear God's words and be sanctified by hearing them in truth. He's also praying, I think, that we would have the truth of God dwelling within us. He would pray to the Father to send the Spirit, a Spirit that only those willing to submit would be able to receive, a Spirit that the world cannot know, but we know the truth because God's Spirit dwells within. Let's consider 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm going to back up a little bit to 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Paul is telling us that there aren't too many wise according to the flesh that come, and he's not knocking us down and speaking ill of the brethren. It's just the reality. And really, we ought to be thankful for that because God chose a different path. God chose the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. I can remember sitting in an econ class with a couple of folks that uh, we had known each other in other classes in college, and, and she said, I just don't know how anybody could be so dumb as to think that evolution wasn't true. At which point she realized she was sitting beside me and said, oh, I'm sorry. But the the point was already made. Here's the fool in the group. Well, let's make sure we're the fools for God's sake. 
Who in this world would select a poor carpenter's son from no name Nazareth with a bunch of ragtags and outcasts following him to build the greatest kingdom this world has ever known? That comes only by the power of God. Therefore, no flesh should glory in his presence. Notice verses 30 and 31 there. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God became for us both wisdom and sanctification. It's a marvelous reality that we have Christ and therefore we both know him and we know what he's asking of us. We both know exactly how we can be in him and stay in him and grow in him because he has given us that spirit of truth. He continues this line of reasoning in chapter 2. Instead of the wisdom of this age or the might of the flesh, God's wisdom is hidden for revelation at the appointed time. It wasn't obvious to the flesh, else they wouldn't have crucified our Lord, according to verse 8. If you drop down to verse 10 in 2 Corinthians 2, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? There is this great blessing where God has given us the thing that knows him, and it's within us. And we can accept the reality of what he's saying here, because it's true. Some of you have had thoughts throughout my, I'm, I think I've been speaking for about 35 minutes now. And some of you have had thoughts about how your dinner is settling. But no one else around you knows that. Why? Because only the man, <clears throat> the inner being, knows what's in you. Well, it's the same with God. Only God's spirit really knows God. And then God gifts that to us so that we can know the will of God. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Jesus prayed that we might receive the spirit of truth to know the things of God, and to grow closer to that truth. And we've been blessed with that. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. God has freely answered Christ's prayer. We have the spirit within, and we can know the truth. Not only is it written down for us, but the ability to discern it is within us so that we may compare spiritual things with spiritual. Verse 13. So if we were to summarize everything that we've talked about so far and get a, a good picture for this, this world is confused about truth. And so they have no standard by which to judge what is right. This leaves morality to the loudest voice. Even those who claim to be in Christ have not been immune by lack of sound teaching that has allowed false ideals to spread. Without a basis in truth, we have no solid foundation on which to stand. 
The wise man in verse 7 who built his house on the solid foundation did so on the words of God. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, Matthew 7, 24. God, as we said, is true. His words do not fail. They are a rock to rest assured on. Secondly, God's will is that we grow closer to the image of his son and therefore grow closer to him in proximity to him. He calls this sanctification or be growing in our holiness. That we shed ourselves of the image of our flesh. It is both an immediate occurrence upon our conversion where we are born anew and in a process whereby we mature into Christians who look like his children in truth. It's an important reality because we still dwell in these fleshly bodies and we still have urges that the flesh tries to, uh, that Satan uses against us. Even though we have recognized its deadness through the power of Christ's cross, we still allow the spirit to be life within us rather than dwell in dead flesh. We must allow the spirit to be life and break through the dead flesh. God's process of sanctifying us comes through his spirit, who is both the agent changing us as we allow, as well as the source of wisdom whereby we come to know what is true. Finally, therefore, we can know that there is truth. We can live in that truth because God has blessed us with the Spirit, His Spirit, who knows the truth. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, 20 through 24. But, we, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I'm going to stop there tonight. We have several more of those questions to cover, and I want to be fair to you. You've been sitting all day. And uh, that is a good spot to stop if there is any. We exist in a world created by God in truth. The world can deny it. The world can avoid it. The world can spit at it. But the truth will remain. Don't ignore the truth. Don't ignore him who is truth. He is the only truth that will remain forever. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. That's that holiness and sanctification. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James 4, 7 and 8. God is calling us to submit, to draw near, to take a step close to him. 
Draw near to him and he will implant his spirit within you and allow you to live forever. If there be anyone here this evening looking for the Lord, draw near to him as soon as you can. And if we can help you do that, let it be known as we stand and sing.